Back when I was a student at the University of Delaware, I had a roommate named Paul Dewar. He was a tall kid from Long Island, and he liked basketball and creating quirky top 10 rankings of stuff like the biggest NFL bust and the hottest cartoon characters. Well, one day, while sitting in our apartment at Christiana Towers, planning a Friday night out, Paul said, you know, it's all about the stories. And then he elaborated, you know, whether we hook up or not, whether someone throws up in a puddle or someone gets in a fight or loses his hat, at the end of the day, it's all about the stories you have to tell years and years later. That was almost three decades ago. And to this day, it's the best inadvertent advice I've ever received. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of nine books and the host of Two Writers Slinging Yang, the podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. Today's guest is Jesse Sage, and this is definitely an outside-the-box episode. Jesse is a sex worker, an advocate for sex workers, and a brilliant writer on sex, sexuality, and the sex industry. And her work has appeared everywhere, from the Washington Post, to Vice, to Men's Health, to BuzzFeed. She's also the former weekly sex columnist at the Pittsburgh City Paper. This is episode number 242. Let's sing some yay. Dad, your podcast sucks, and you smell like vinegar and cottage cheese. All right, Jesse, first of all, thank you. Uh, thank you for doing this. I can already tell from looking at you that of the guests I've had, you have the most unique tattoos. Of, oh, uh, thank you. <laughs> yeah, what, what, wait, what is the large tattoo I'm staring at on your shoulder? Um, let's see. It is, I mean, it's a sleeve. It's a flowers that goes like all the way around, and it's on my shoulder too. It's actually um, all of... The, they're Mexican style flowers from the paintings in Frida Kahlo, like in Frida Kahlo's paintings. Oh, wow. so, yeah. So I just told the artist that I really like her work and I wanted him to take like the different flowers from, um, you know, that you see in her headpieces and to create something, not a replica, but like something in that style. And that's what he did. On a scale of one to 10, how much of a wimp does it make me that I'm sort of, I just have this nervousness about the pain of tattoos. Tattoos are not painful. So a 10. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't think tattoos are very painful. They're so surface level. Um, yeah. And then my other arm has like very uh, feminine like symbols. I have a red, uh, red, I don't think you can see this, but a red umbrella tattoo because uh, that's the symbol for sex worker solidarity and um, a fan and a lipstick and a shoe, different sorts of uh, feminine apparel. All right. So I asked you yesterday for a bio. And I want to read what well, usually the people I have in this podcast tend to be sports writers or, you know, political journalists. And it's pretty straightforward. And I want to read what you wrote me. And you said, um, you wrote Jesse, Jesse Sage is a Pittsburgh based sex worker and writer, though she is currently on book leave and with a looming manuscript deadline, trying to write nothing but her book. Her past work can be found in the Washington Post, Vice, Men's Health, Hustler Magazine, The Doe, BuzzFeed, The Daily Beast and more. Formerly, she was a weekly sex columnist, at the Pittsburgh City Paper. She co-hosts two sex work podcasts, the Peep Show podcast, and On the Horizon. She did four years of a PhD in philosophy before thinking better of academia and dropping out. She had a master's degree in philosophy, one in theology, and a bachelor's in philosophy. In her past lives, she worked as a doula and a university instructor. She's married and has three kids. And here's the thing I got to say. Okay. <laughs> you are a fucking great writer. And not just a good oh, writer. Thank a you. great writer. Like, <laughs> thank your you. Your stuff sizzles and i feel like sometimes on this podcast when i have sort of niche subjects mm -hmm. which is food or you know or sex work in this case or 
people might think, oh, there's kind of a gimmick element to this or blah, blah, blah. And I want to read, you wrote, um, you wrote a piece uh, called A Mother's Honest Take. Okay. And the headline was, the main headline was, Joy and Grief Through My Son's Transition. And you wrote, my son stepped out of his dad's house, a shoebox in his hands. It is a present, he said, but I don't want you to open, up, open it in front of me. I could tell he was nervous. Later, when no one was around at work, I opened it. Inside sat a hair ribbon, an elementary school art project with his uh, dead name etched in it, and some other feminine trinkets. Now fully committed to his female-to-male transition, he wrapped up what he had left of his uh, feminine childhood and gave it to me as if to say, here are the remaining artifacts of having had a daughter. I sat on my desk and cried the rest of the day. It's as good as anything I've read about someone with a child transitioning. Mm-hmm. And before I get into anything about your life and your career, I actually really want to talk about this. Okay. When you went through something this hard, because I have a friend who also is going through this and mm-hmm. it really is discussed as almost like the death of a child in a way and that, not, not burying a child and not, right. mm-hmm. I guess I, I don't even want to put words in your mouth. How would you explain the experience? Yeah, of why you I, about it? I actually talk about that in that piece because um, one of the things that prompted me to write it is that I'm, I'm very active on, on Twitter and I saw some, um, young trans people, young adults that were trans people who were tweeting. And one of them said um, that she was really offended because her mom said to her that it felt like that. And she compared her, the transition to one of her miscarriages. And that was so interesting to me to see that perceived as something that was like offensive. And I, I can understand it from the perspective of a trans person, but like I had also gone through a couple of miscarriages and um, I had also had a kid who was transitioning. And to me, like I understood that, um, that feeling and it's not, it's not the same. It's not, you know, the person themselves doesn't die, but I think one of the things that we need to um one of the things that I think that we should be open to talking about and to like um, articulating is, is that when somebody in a family transitions, like the whole family transitions and it's not just that person. And I went from having an identity as like a mother of a daughter to like no law. And the interesting thing is too, my two younger kids are, were boys. And so I went from like, all of a sudden when I didn't, people would ask me like, oh, you have kids, you know, do you have boys or girls? And I would say I have boys. And then people would um, say, oh my gosh, you have three boys. Like you didn't have to go through having a daughter and making all these assumptions and like projecting them onto me as if I hadn't had the sort of experiences that I had. And, um, you know, I don't want to open up with strangers, a whole can of worms about like my kid's identity, which is really none of their business, but it did feel like there was, um, an erasure of my own experiences that I think was worth like talking about because we don't often want to talk about, um, how family members, like what, what family members feel because it's a transition that is like for the person. And I understand that, but we can't pretend that it doesn't have like impact on everybody else in the family. Are you such a person where you have something like this happens and your first instinct is to write about it? No, I didn't write about it until later, you know, and it's, it's interesting. I want to um, say that my, my kid um, legally transitioned, changed their name and pronouns um, through the state and was on testosterone for five years and then 
recently said that they've decided that they don't want to continue with that and has gone back to female pronouns and changed their name again. And so um, I've had to actually, since I wrote that, go back and <laughs> like rechange all of that in my, in my head and start with a new name. And that's been a really interesting experience because I had a, a child who identified as a girl, I had a girl child and then a boy teenager. And now I have an adult daughter <laughs> and didn't have any of the experiences like in between, you know? And so it's been a really like interesting experience for us. Um, I don't think that I thought I wanted to write about it right away. I think that I had to spend some time with my own feelings. And I say as a writer that I often don't know how I feel about things until I sit down to write about them, that it's like through the process of writing that I often get in touch with my feelings. So I think when I started going through it at the beginning, I was just trying to help her, trying to get her the resources that she needed, trying to interface with the rest of the family, because I was always like very supportive, like from day one. And I wanted to get that across in the article too, is that it wasn't that I didn't support the, the transition or the idea. I just had to grapple with my own feelings. But I think as a mom, my first response was like, get the kid the things that they need, uh, get the right medical care, get the right like therapist, talk to all the grandparents and interface and try to help when they're misgendering her. And so I was more like on the mode of like, do the things I need to do. And then it was later when I sat down to write about it that I could think about like what I was actually feeling about it. Every now and then I, uh, I have two kids. Um mm -hmm. I long for the simple days where like when my parents are growing up and basically their parents just sent them out into the street for six hours after school. Yeah. And they wouldn't come back until later. And they had all these issues, obviously, but none of it was expressed. It <laughs> probably, made life, probably made life a lot easier. I can't imagine that. Like we can't raise our kids like that anymore. No, no. <laughs> we can't feed them liver and we can't just send them out and they can't ride their bike off for two hours. And uh, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. They'll come back. Yeah, They'll get hungry eventually. Right. It'll probably be okay. Um, but so, yeah. Again, I, I don't usually make this a, this is your life kind of podcast, but I feel like mm -hmm. this is a special circumstance because your life is one that fascinates me and it's a turf I'm not that familiar with. As we discussed, you're well-educated. You are originally from the West coast. I don't even know, like how does one sort of become a sex worker? And I guess I'll make this a long question. So I, I welcome a long answer. And then how okay. does one transition thinking, all right, I'm, I'm working in the sex field and now I'm becoming, I'm going to write about it. So how do those two things happen mm -hmm. for you? Um, so, you know, I was, I, you read in my bio that I was doing a PhD in philosophy. When I was doing that, I was focusing on feminist philosophy and on like philosophies of the body. And I was really interested in um, how one experiences them themselves, but also how one like writes through the body. So there's this feminist philosopher, um, and theorist, um, named Helene Sixou, who's a, a French, uh, theorist, post-structuralist theorist. And one of the things that she talked about a lot was that like, she, she says, in this really famous piece she has called the laugh of Medusa, um, she says that women who are never far from mother write in white ink, like making allusions to their like breast milk and that it's like through their body and like the, the very like embodied experiences that they have that like their writing springs. And this idea was really, really interesting to me as um, a grad student. And I didn't consider myself a writer then because I was just writing papers that were like assigned to me, <laughs> you know, like you do in school, but like 
I was writing about that. I was thinking about like, what does it mean to be like in this body, but also to, um, um, to be a writer, to like be a woman, to experience sexuality. And so for me, like sexuality and writing and my body and motherhood were all things that were like very intimately interwoven. And I wanted to, um, it was like in my writing work that I tried to figure out like how those were connected. And then I left academia. And part of the reason I left was because um, the department I was in was very hostile toward the type of work I was doing. Like that wasn't real philosophy, like real philosophers were concerned about, I don't know, the forms and justice and abstract ideas. And I was interested in like the experiences that I was having, Um, not just me, but like bodily experiences. And so um, I left and I didn't really have much of a plan of what I was going to do after that and got a very boring, like corporate job that made me want to die. Um, and, um, what was it? Wait, what was it? <laughs> I was working at a very, I probably won't say what it was, but I was working at a very large uh, remediation and construction business in the office as a program manager, which is like an empty title. It doesn't mean anything. It's some sort of corporate bullshit. I just sat at a desk. So, (laughs) um, yeah, so I was doing that and they made fun of me for like being a liberal arts person because they couldn't wrap their head around that. So I was doing that and I got into a relationship with somebody who like became my husband that I have now. I was in the middle of a divorce at the same time. And um, he was doing sex camming and writing about that for his dissertation. So he was a PhD student as well. And he was writing a dissertation on sex camming. Wait, wait, time out. Yeah. (laughs) Getting his PhD. Uh In sociology. Okay. And his focus is on the sex cam work that he is doing. Yes. And he did a qualitative study where he interviewed like 30 sex cam models about the work, uh, like the, the work that goes into it, what happens behind the scenes. Like, um, and so he was interviewing all of these cam models and, um, I started to ask him about it. We were kind of new in our relationship. And I was like, what is this? I want to know about it because I have to, I have to admit, and I hate to, to do this, given that this is my industry. Like I never watch porn. I'm not like a porn consumer fan. It wasn't like something that I knew a lot about. So webcamming wasn't something that I would just like stumble upon myself. (laughs) Um, So I found out that it was even a thing because he was researching it. And so I was like, well, I want to, I want to try that out. Um, I want to know what that's about. And part of it at the beginning was I was writing about like Uh, how one experiences their body. And I was like, curious, like how that happens, like in like a commercial sense. And also like within feminist philosophy, there's tons and tons of anti-porn rhetoric about um, why no woman would ever choose to be in sex work and all these philosophical arguments as to why it's just violence and exploitation. Um, You know, there's a very famous quote that like um, porn is the praxis and rape is the wait, no, how does it go? Something like um, they're basically saying that like doing porn is akin to rape. And now I can't remember the exact quote, but 
I was getting to know the people that like my husband was interviewing and that didn't seem right to me <laughs> um, based on who they were and how they articulated their own experience. So I wanted to know more about that. So I got into webcamming and with him, we did like couple shows um, and then that wasn't really my thing because I'm not a performer. I'm not much of a performer. And so I realized at this boring corporate job that I could take phone sex calls. This is why I'm not going to say that much about the company because okay. I was oh, doing, <laughs> I was doing work at work. Um, and I learned that like, you could take like what phone sex was and that it was still like a thriving business. And I was really bored at my job because there wasn't really much for me to do. And so I didn't really like camming. And I was like, well, maybe I can take phone sex calls. Like that might be fun. And so I started doing that. And that was really, really interesting because when people are um, calling phone sex operators, they're talking about like really deep fantasies or like sexual issues that they're having or desires that they have that they don't tell anybody about or insecurities that they have, or they're trying to remember these nostalgic things that happened with partners from 20 years ago, or, you know, there's all sorts of things that are going on in this like very imaginative space. That's just ripe for writing because you suddenly are like thrown into people's like really deep erotic imaginations in ways that I didn't anticipate. And so when I couldn't take calls and I was just sitting at my desk because I had this background in like writing um, as a student, I was like, I'm just going to write about these stories that people are telling me. So I started writing, but really not for any purpose, just to write about because I didn't have much to do. And then one day I saw like across my Facebook, it's so weird that this like catapulted my career, but I start saw across my Facebook that um, the Pittsburgh Humanities Festival was had an open space for like a Pittsburgh community member to apply to be speak a speaker on this panel with like all of these like really big people that like writers and people that they were pulling in. And so I kind of missed academia at the time. And so I was like, I'm going to write an abstract for a proposal to give a talk at this big humanities festival that like the cultural trust was like putting on. And I didn't think I would get it. And I proposed to write about um, phone sex and what it, I've learned about masculinity through phone sex. And I won. Wow. <laughs> and I didn't think that that was that big of a deal until they called me and they were like, um, you're going to have to uh, give us information because we're passing it along to our publicists because we're doing like a big publicity push for your talk. And I was like, oh shit, now I have to tell the world like that, not only that I'm a sex worker, but like, I didn't anticipate coming out, you know, it was like a, something I was doing on the side. And then my friend was like, um, your picture is on a bus. So <laughs> wow, with your real name. No, with Jesse Sage as my okay. like writing name. And it was okay. the name that I was doing phone sex under. So I had to tell the people around me, like, by the way, I'm giving this talk. Apparently it's a big deal. I didn't know it was a big deal. I just did. I just wrote an abstract for the heck of it. And after that, I got asked to write a sex call. So Dan Savage left the city paper and went to a different paper. Um, and so they had no sex columnist. And because I had come out in my city as like both writing about sex work and doing sex work, they were like, oh, it'd be cool to bring a sex worker in. And I started writing a sex column in my city. And that's kind of the long and the short of it. And 
now I'm writing a book. So that's how I started doing sex work. And that's how I started writing about it. And it all kind of happened by accident. You mentioned that um, early on, like sort of the idea of porn and sex work as exploitation. Mm -hmm. And that's obviously a very, very common take. Right. And I'm guessing you feel a lazy take. Why? Um, Because that's not what the people who are doing sex work, like many of the people who are doing sex work actually feel about their jobs. And so, you know, there, I think it is a lazy take. I think that there's this whole like idea of like selling your body um, that is, um, that keeps getting repeated over and over again, as if other people in other professions aren't using their bodies. <laughs> and, you know, that as if like laborers aren't using their bodies, as if models in like the regular world aren't using their right. bodies, as if people aren't laboring in all sorts of ways, like through their bodies, through um, their talents and their gifts. And so to assume that um, sex workers, because they're using their bodies in a way that, um, society deems to be like improper or, you know, a misuse of sexuality um, um, to assume that they're being exploited just because respectability politics says that I shouldn't use my body and like the way that um, I want to, that seem, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense to infer from that, that then, oh, therefore I must be like exploited. Um, and I think that most of the people that um, there is exploitation, obviously, in the sex industry, but there's exploitation in like every industry. And one of the um, things that was so striking to me when I went when I moved into sex work is that as a freelance writer and as an adjunct professor, um, I felt way more exploited and like my labor was way more undervalued in those arenas than it was in sex work. And I also think that part of that is wrapped up in this like undervaluing of what it is that sex workers do and assuming that, I mean, especially coming from like feminists, there's like really terrible um, uh, ways that they talk about sex workers as just like holes that are being used to be discarded, things like that. And isn't taking into consideration like all of the work that goes into being a sex worker, that it's not just about like the, the act of having sex or the act of creating like a porn clip or of taking a phone sex call, but that like sex workers are marketing, they're running small businesses, they're um, having long-term relationships with clients, they're cultivating fan bases, they're like their own social media managers. And I think that, um, you know, I, I think that there's something that happens in our culture where we both like overvalue and undervalue sex. And that plays into our notions of like what the problem with sex work is, is that we tend to think that if there's sex that's involved in anything, that that's like the most and like pertinent thing. When actually what I've found in my work is that clients will come to me with sexual uh, needs because that's what they think they are like that's the way that they enter into these like relationships or dynamics, but actually they're often looking for companionship or somebody to talk to, or, you know, somebody to help them make sense of their needs or a lot of even, or, you know, uh, understanding their own like gender identities or sexual orientations and all sorts of things that aren't just having sex that I think that if you're outside of the industry or you haven't worked in these fields, it's really hard to know that or to see that, but everyone 
who has understands that this is like a very multifaceted job that you need to bring a lot of skills to. I think uh, one thing we've seen blatantly recently, uh, especially with the Supreme Court and Roe v. Wade, Mm -hmm. is we still live in a world where men describe and decide what's okay for women in their bodies and what's not okay for women in their bodies. Right. Like, mm-hmm. The more I think about it, I just think the more of this definition of what someone like you should be doing is a right. man deciding what you should be doing. Yeah. I mean, yes, I think that that's true, but I also think that it's coming from a lot of like women too, who are somehow like afraid or threatened by the idea of like sex work when they know like not that much about it. And and I would have considered myself to be one of those people too. Like I said, like I wasn't a porn consumer. I didn't know that much about the industry before I came in. Any idea that I had about it was like completely abstract. <laughs> and when I came into it and met the, the, and it's not all women who are sex workers, but when I met the people who were doing sex work um, and I realized, um, yeah, that, that they're using their bodies um in a way uh, to make their living, but they're also doing so many other things. And that also there's nothing, even if that's the only thing they were doing, why should we say that like sex workers can't use their, their bodies um, in a sexual way in order to make their living um, where, you know, welders can, you know, <laughs> um, right. you know, that doesn't make any sense. I just want to say adjunct professor, Manhattanville college, 2008, I made $1,300 for the semester. Yeah, it's outrageous. It's ridiculous. (laughs) You wrote a piece called uh, recently, September 6th, How to Not Catch Feelings. This is a Uh blog post you wrote. I just want to read the lead to that. Again, love your writing. Like, truly love your writing. Thank you. Thank you. Dippy as hell. You wrote, um, a couple weeks ago, I found myself at a swanky rooftop bar overlooking Times Square in New York City, enjoying a cocktail and finger foods with a client I had been courting on Twitter for some time. While we had previously had a few phone and texting sessions, It was the first time we met in person, and it was also the first time that he hired a companion. At some point, while we were looking out over the city, flirting and discussing books, he stopped and said, this feels like a real date. Of course, the main difference between this and a quote-unquote real date is that he was paying me for my time. Other than this, arguably small detail, we were in fact on a date. We were both dressed up, we were getting to know each other through long and sustained conversations about life and art, and we were flirting, building the tension for what would come after we left the bar. Hours later, as we cuddled in my hotel bed, exhausted from the evening's adventures, he turned to me and asked, how do you handle the emotional part of this job, the romantic part? And then you wrote, the question pulled us out of the fantasy that we had co-created and pushed us to address the elephant in the room. This was not a date that would lead to anything other than perhaps another similar set's date. While our time together was intimate and romantic, it wasn't a means to an end. The date was the end itself. It couldn't be more. It was bounded. It's freaking really good. First of all, really good. Um, Thank you. I got, I guess I have multiple questions on this. And Mm -hmm. number one is obviously part of your job is escorting and more. Mm -hmm. Um, How don't you have emotional connections to these people? I mean, I don't think that that's the right question, actually, because I feel like we do develop emotional connections. And I think that that's like what I was trying to. I totally butchered that question, but go ahead. You're right. You're right. (laughs) No, 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 it's okay. But I think I think that that's a normal like I think that's a, a common question. And I understand where it's coming from, because we don't have a language in our culture to talk about um, emotional connections that aren't. um, I want to use like a 
theological word, which is ridiculous, like that aren't teleological. And what I mean by that, that aren't like going towards something else, especially when sex or like romance is involved. Right. And so um, there's, I think that um, I can't say that I don't have emotional connections with my clients, especially the ones that I see like on a regular basis, because I do. And I know that they do too. Um, What I think is important is to be able to, or what I think that I work to do and what I work, and it's easier for me than it is for them often, because like, I know how, how to navigate this and how to do this and what it is and what it isn't. And I think that that can get confusing um, for clients. But um, I think that what I want to see is like really um, is conversations about what it's like to have to form and have emotional connections where we aren't assuming that it's going to end in a marriage, (laughs) a shared mortgage and a shared bank account, you know, like, um, and I think the fact that I'm a fairly like poly person that feels like I can have like multiple emotional connections with people, um, emotional and, you know, sexual connections with people makes that a little bit easier. But I also think that, there's something that's magic about the boundedness. And I think the boundedness is what's important. You know, there's something that's magical about like, we can create these moments where we can have these connections, but we need to leave them there until we come back to them. You know, they can't, they're not supposed to bleed out into the rest of our lives into, um, into our everyday. And that's kind of what makes them magical. Is there something that like steps outside of the everyday and into this like co-creation that I was talking about in the piece. And I personally feel like emotional connections are like good and okay. And what makes those experiences, good experiences. But I think that they need to be recognized for like, for just that, like for an emotional connection that's being like left within those parameters. I am fascinated by this. Like, um, all right, you're, you do your job and mm-hmm. you have, I presume sex. I don't know how much you talk about this, but sex or sexual relations or whatever you want to call it with a client. This is all happening. The guy says, I love you or something mm-hmm. like that. And I'm sure you've had expressions yeah. of affection. Are you like, oh, that's nice. <laughs> Kind of. <laughs> no, <laughs> no. Um, no, I, and you know, one of my um, boundaries is like to make things like not so confusing. And I've like had very explicit conversations with clients about this is I'll say, I can't say that <laughs> back. You know, I'm not going to be like, I love you too, but I do, I will create space for you to like express your feelings and not shut them down. And also like, you know, I I wrote a piece a long time ago, actually about a client who, um, a phone client actually, who every time he was coming on the phone would say, I love you. Um, and I just let him say it and it would just like kind of hang in the air. And part of the reason that I did that, that wasn't upsetting or troubling or, um, shocking to me is that he, um, he, his wife had died and he, you know, he, and I felt like he was an older gentleman after so many years of only having sex with his wife that he really did love. It was really difficult for him to detangle like this sexual pleasure with like a feeling of like love, romantic love, you know? And so 
I felt fine. I felt very comfortable allowing him to like feel that in those moments, but then he would go back to his life, you know? <laughs> and then a couple of weeks later, he would call me again and we would do it again. And I didn't feel like that was confusing because I felt like what he wanted was to be able to like have those moments, you know, where he yeah. was feeling that again, feeling that feeling of like being in love again. And to me, if you can, um, recognize that it's like a cre creation of a fantasy in which you are allowed to feel the feelings that you want to feel, but that you understand that you can't take those feelings and say like, okay, therefore I don't want you to do your job. I don't want you to see other clients. Oh, and that husband that you have, which I do have, <laughs> you know, like, that's threatening. You know, so long as somebody like understands that, like those feelings aren't going to change anything about my life or the way that I conduct my life, but I'll still be open to letting them experience them. Like that's how I go about things. I know that people, um, other, I can't speak for other people who are doing the same sort of work. I mean, I think for a lot of people, that's a hard no. And as soon as like clients cross over that line, they don't want to engage with them anymore. It seems threatening or some people I know, like express it back to them. Um, you know, if they're feeling those feelings, um, I just think that people like everybody who does this sort of work has to figure out how they're going to deal with the like very intense emotions that come about because of it. I feel like every, every episode of this podcast, like I always walk away with something I remember about the guest or what they said. And I think mm -hmm. there's something really profound about someone who lost his spouse mm -hmm. needing to say, I love you. Yeah. And you understanding that and giving that to him and not mm -hmm. ruining it for him. I think that's an unexpectedly beautiful sort of sentiment <laughs> to that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that we like, and we didn't speak about it. Like, I didn't feel like I needed to like analyze that with him. It was just this thing that like happened between us and I just let it happen. And then that was, that was it. You know. <laughs> and you mentioned you had a husband. I'm, I, I feel like there's a question that that's hovering over anyone who's listening to this now, which is how does your husband feel about all this? Did you have to Look, this is what I do. Just so you know, is there? What, well, what no, because I started. I started this work like in the relationship with him. Like I didn't do it before I met him. So like it was something that happened like very organically. Like from we did camming together to I'm doing phone sex on my own to we're making clips together to I'm making clips with other performers to you know that was like a a long progression that happened and then to where I was finally like. I don't want to just do online work. I want to actually be able to like see people in person. And it actually hasn't been like a conflict for us in our relationship. It's been something like we have, we have, you know, we're married. We're like a married couple. We have some conflicts, but like, they're usually like, you're working again. Like I was here last night with the kids, like, right, <laughs> like right, right. um, you know, are we going to eat dinner or like, what's the situation here with this? And, you know, it's our conflicts are much more logistical and much less about like the nature of my work, which is the case with every couple that has, where both people work, you know, like that's just how it is. If you have kids and you're too, both working, there's like conflicts of how to make all that happen. Um, and I think that that's where things are with us. But I think that, especially since he's like a researcher who's very focused on like sex work, he understands like 
what, what it is. It's not foreign to him. He knows a lot about it. Um, he's, you know, done other forms of sex work himself. And so it's just very integrated into our lives in a way that's easy for us. And it's funny because people always ask me that. And I'm like, I don't know, it's just our life. Like, it doesn't seem weird to me, <laughs> you know, and I know that for a lot of people, it would be hard. And for us, it's just part of our lives. Before we continue with Two Writers Slinging Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman, and I'm here with my daughter, Casey, who's home from college for the winter break. Bradley says I should no longer participate in this endeavor. Who's Bradley? He's the TA in my philosophy class. He wears tweed and went to Harvard. He finds commercialism to be beneath me. How did this even come up? We discussed market control over wheatgrass shots at a charming little cafe by the villa. I mean, has Bradley ever been to RoyalRetros.com? Does he know that you can go there and get all sorts of throwback jerseys and hats right now at low prices, that they're high quality and super comfortable? Oh, father. Bradley's in stod right now, saving primates. He has no time for such trivial matters. All right, so you wrote a piece, um, My Life as an Online Sex Worker During COVID, a series of vignettes. I love this. You wrote, uh, I step out of the shower, do my hair, put on a full face of makeup, make my bed, and I set up the lighting in my room so that I can snap a few sexy selfies for my fans. With my kids now at home around the clock, I don't have the privacy or the time to create an entire video, but I think I can at least get them a, a thirst trap to keep my subscription site alive. Right before stepping in front of the camera, I pop downstairs to check on, my, on the kids. My toddler's in the living room looking very shiny and proud of himself. When I look closer, I discover he is covered in butter, as in my entire dining room. <laughs> It seems that one of my teenagers made pancakes and left an open tub of butter on the dining room table, and neither of the older kids noticed what my brother was doing. I'm no longer in the mood to shoot sexy selfies. <laughs> I forgot I heard about that. <laughs> it's so good. We all have our uh, <laughs> we all had our COVID nightmares. That many of us still do. Mm -hmm. um, what was it for you? That maybe. <laughs> No, I think um, it was really hard. It was because you need a certain level of like privacy to do this job. And it was easy when the kids were in school and when they weren't in school anymore, like I didn't have that. And so, you know, I, I think that there's, um, there's a lot of like fear around like sex working moms. Like they don't have boundaries and don't know how to like um, do their jobs and also be good moms, which is totally ridiculous because everybody else every other parent knows how to like have a sex life and also have kids and not like mix those things, you know? And so, um, you know, I was doing my, my job during the day when they were at school and everything was fine. And then when there was no school for them to go to and you can't see people because of COVID, you know? And so I had to make sure that like, I made all the money that I needed to make like at home, I had platforms to do that, but I had no like time and space. And not only that, but when you're like tripping over toys and cleaning up butter, it's not super sexy. <laughs> like need to get into a mind frame to be able to perform sexuality. I mean, that's what it is. You're performing like a sexuality and it's really hard to perform a sexuality when you're like kids are spreading butter all over the place and you're just like frustrated and cleaning up over and over and over again. I'm coating myself in butter. Oh, baby, that sounds sexy. No. No, <laughs> it's not. It's really not. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, that was really hard. It was really hard to find the time. Um, but even more than finding the time is like getting in the headspace and uh, not having any separation between like family life and work life. And um, so that was really hard. The other thing that was really hard um, as a writer, and I have to say like as a sex work writer is that 
I was getting kind of hounded by reporters, but also being asked to write a lot about like online sex work during the pandemic because it was like a hot button issue. And most reporters were getting it wrong. And it was really frustrating because <laughs> well, you'd get like all these stories about all these people making $10,000 a month on OnlyFans. And there are some people who are making $10,000 a month on OnlyFans, but that is by far like not the average. And most people aren't doing that. And so it was twofold, actually. It was that there was tons of stories about that. And then it was also um, that was skewing the public imagination as to like what was happening in this online world and how much people were making in it. And then tons of people uh, who had just lost their jobs, who never considered doing sex work before, who were suddenly like flooding into my DMs and everybody else's DMs being like, how do you make money in the online sex industry? Because now I'm broke and I don't have my job. And it was really overwhelming and like emotionally overwhelming, I think, because not only was were we all just trying to survive in like really weird circumstances, but we're getting way more press attention that we're having to pay attention to way more people trying to like ask us how to do our jobs and ask us for free coaching advice on how to get into like our work. But, and the platforms were becoming like totally oversaturated um, with performers, but also, I also want to say that um, the client interactions changed because a lot of the clients were really stressed out. So there was a lot of like emotional labor that went into the work that we were doing. I actually thought you were going to say, um, because everyone was home, it was harder for people to find the privacy to actually. That fall. too. Yeah, that too. Although like things like OnlyFans became uh, sales on there got higher for a while because that was something that somebody could like scroll their phone and see without making any, you know, without talking to somebody. Like I think for a lot of the live web cameras, it was harder because you were suddenly, your whole family was at home. So you're not going to watch live webcams on your second screen, which is like what a lot of people were doing before that. Yeah. I've read a bunch of books, right? And mm -hmm. I'm not saying it's a big deal. I'm just saying that's right, my job, right? Like I'm on this mm -hmm. job and I've read a bunch of books. And every now and then someone will say, oh, I really want to write a book. How can I write a book? And yeah. there's a part of me always that's like, <laughs> are you fucking kidding me? Like you write a book, it fucking kills me every two years. You know, it's like hard. <laughs> like writing a book is hard. When people are like, Hey, Jesse, I want to do sex work too. Can you teach me out? Are you like, it's not, you don't just buy a slinky outfit in a camp. Yeah. Yes. Yes, it does. But also like, also, I think that it, it makes me confront the fact that I've given up a lot to have this life. I've like, I've gotten a lot from it, but I've also given up a lot. I've given up like privacy, uh, living under sex work stigma is actually really difficult. Like interacting with family and friends, like recognizing, um, that you lose a lot of people when you come out as publicly as a sex worker, as you do, like having, like, there's, there's so many things that like people just don't even take into consideration that I, you know, when they come to me and they're like, I, I want to do this. And I'm like, are, are you really sure? Like right. you want to be naked on the internet forever. Like, have you thought this through? <laughs> and I think that um, not only is it really hard, not only is it not the easy money that people like, think it's going to be, but also it, it carries a weight that you can't just like take off one day when you're sick of it. And I think that having to explain that to people who've like never thought about it before, um, is taxing, but also having to kind of relive that for every single person who's coming to, it's like, you're saying like, I don't want to, you know, to 
do something as big as writing a book and then just to kind of digest it into bite-sized pieces for you and tell you to go and do it. Like that's a kind of, it's a ridiculous ask. And I feel the same thing about like people who come and say like, well, I want to do it. I want to do what you're doing. You wrote a piece for the Washington post in 2018, basically a column, want to figure out the rules of sexual consent as sex workers. And I would not use your name you wrote under, but you wrote under your real name. Mm-hmm. And you actually ended up writing a piece about it that you sent me about the decision to use your real name, which is basically the Washington Post insists, as do yeah. most of mainstream publications, that you use your real name. You can't use They're the only name. ones, actually, that have done that. Interesting. So mm-hmm. New York Times, places like that, as you know of, not... Um, some they have for some people, but there's a lot of performers who've written under their like pseudonyms. I mean, Stoya's written a couple of times for the New York Times, like other like she's a porn performer wrote under just Stoya, you know, one name um, yeah. for New York Times. There's I've written for other big publications who've never even given me like a hard time at all. Um, my book contract is, you know, my contract is under my legal name, but they're very in the contract, this book will come out under Dusty Sage. Like it doesn't seem like it even makes sense for anybody to publish anything under my real name. Cause that there's no writing career under, my right. real, it doesn't exist, you know? So um, yeah, they're the only ones. And the, the reason that this was like really problematic for me is that we had gone through like three cycles of editing for that piece. And then they were like, Oh, by the way, we've decided that we can't, use your writing name. And I almost pulled the piece and then I decided to not pull it and then to just expose why I thought that was a problem. And I don't know, I'm not sure if that was the right decision or not, but that's what I did. (laughs) Well, so what was the impact of that or was there any? I don't know if there was one from the side of the Washington Post, but I know that the the follow-up blog that I wrote about real name policies got like way more attention in my circles than like, a Washington Post piece did, which is like kind of ironic. And then it was funny because one time I was in New York and I was with a sex worker friend of mine. Um, and she's like, oh, my sub is going to drive us to this thing because she has like a driver. But it turns out that this driver is actually like a pretty well-known writer and radio personality. <laughs> so that's kind of funny, but I won't tell you who he is. Um, so he's driving us around and he's like, wait, you're Jesse Sage. And then I was like, yeah. And he's like, oh, I heard about that whole Washington Post thing. And I was like, oh, wow. Okay. (laughs) So um, yeah, I I mean, obviously it made people in my community who are all working under fake names or working names, I should say, they're not fake. It's their whole work persona um, upset. And also like the point that I made too, is like, if you're a trans person, which is obviously something that's, you know, close to me, like, are, are they really saying that you have to write under your dead name or your legal name? I mean, that seems so problematic for so many reasons. But there's also issues of safety. And to me, that yeah, would be the big one. That's the biggest one. Yeah, is issues of safety. Yeah. So it's it's interesting because I wrote that piece fairly new into my writing about like sex work and the the criticism of real name policies, I think, got more traction and did the article itself let me ask you lastly you uh you have a very interesting interesting being a compliment not like a euphemism for shitty <laughs> twitter feed like you're big on twitter and yeah. <laughs> i'm big on twitter too and i fucking hate twitter like i'm big on twitter but i hate twitter like um it gets it. hostile after like a certain number of followers like it's all fun and games until 
I don't know, three or 5,000 followers. And then it just like, is so rough. <laughs> How does Twitter impact your profession? Has it been more positive or more negative? I'm not saying of writing, I'm talking sex work. Oh, um, so it's interesting. So Twitter is like really besides Reddit, maybe the last platform where we can actually like advertise our work and put up um, promos of our work. If you're like a content creator, there is like porn on Twitter in ways that you can't have on Instagram or Facebook or anything else. Um, so Twitter is the the biggest social community for sex workers, um, both in terms of like, reaching fans and clients, but also in building community with one another. But Twitter has also been like really difficult for us. So because um, sex work accounts are like shadow banned to death, like, I don't know if you are familiar with what shadow banning is, but shadow banning is basically like, we don't come up in like search or like suggestions, like search suggestions. And so like, often we're like invisible. So I wrote a piece about this with a colleague of mine, Juniper Fitzgerald, where we were at AVN, which is the big, like kind of the like Academy Award of porn, like a huge convention in Vegas every year. Um, And there is a convention floor where all of the performers are like in booths talking to fans and everything like that. And we're meeting people and trying to say like, oh, what's your Twitter handle? Like we should follow each other and become mutuals. And like, nobody can find anybody. It's an entire convention floor worth of people who like, can't connect with one another because all of our names have been made invisible. And the only way to find a lot of them is like twitter.com backslash, you know, sapiotextual or whatever. Um, And that, that ebbs and flows. So sometimes I'm not shadow banned and sometimes I am, and I don't really know what triggers those algorithms, but that's been getting worse and worse. And I don't know if you paid much attention recently, there was, um, you can mod, like, there's the super follows for, uh, monetizing Twitter feed for people who have over 10,000 Twitter followers. And Twitter was basically saying, you can sign up for this if you have more than 10,000 Twitter followers, and then people can super follow you. And basically it turns into like an only fans of Twitter, but from my perspective and from the perspective of a lot of sex workers, even though I know I have people who would give me money on Twitter because they're fans and followers and clients, I I won't sign up for that because when you do that, you have to say, what kind of content creator are you? And then they're putting you into this, like, Oh wait, you're a sex worker. And for me and a lot of other like tech theorists um, believe that that's a way of like easy way of like grouping everybody to like start eliminating those accounts, you know? So Twitter is good and Twitter is bad. Twitter is like my biggest source of business, but it's also like really difficult and becoming increasingly more difficult to like navigate in our line of work. For those who, uh, for those listening who don't follow Jesse, you get sets sexy content as if you're trying to message me and I seem distracted, short or rude, it's because I'm driving everyone all the time. Mom (laughs) is a pseudonym for chauffeur. It was one of my least favorite of the job descriptions or admittedly it ranks higher than laundry. (laughs) about laundry and chauffeuring and then also like sexy things yeah um <laughs> my twitter weakness is i'm a sports writer people turn to me for sports and all i want to do is write about politics and you know how much i hate i mean i'm a huge not fan of trump in that story oh yeah me too <laughs> um yeah well jesse listen you're a freaking great writer um, thank you i really really appreciate you doing this it's, it's really an honor for me thank you so much oh yeah thanks for asking me to come on i want to thank today's guest jesse sage for joining me on Two Riders Sling and Yang. You can follow Jesse on Twitter at 
S-A-P-I-O-T-E-X-T-U-A-L and visit her website at jessiesage.com. If you enjoyed Two Riders Sling and Yang, please consider going to the medium of your choice and leaving a nice review. I get paid nothing for this and I depend on word of mouth. Music is by the outstanding MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me and remember, keep writing. <laughs>